this psalm is the perfect song as an entree into Advent. Because Advent is a time, so we start Advent next, um, next week, and we're going to be in Isaiah. And what is Advent? Advent is a time, Advent means um, um, coming in Latin, and it's the coming, it's the celebration of the coming, as we were just singing, of not only the king, but of the creator of the universe. We believe as Christians that the, the scriptures clearly articulate that the mystery of the ages was that God, even though he foretold it, it was so amazing that we couldn't, we, none of us were able to, to see, even though the Old Testament prophesied it, what God would do, and the fact that the maker of all things became a human child and grew up to be a man to, to, live, in our, to live a life in our place and to die in our place. And so we in Advent move toward focusing with, with laser gaze on the coming of the king and how that, ma- that changes everything for us. So the king is on the brain. Um, and lastly, just I want to say this by way of exhortation as I jump in here. Many of us think of Jesus as Savior. We sing about it all the time, and well ought we. We, we talk about it all the time, hopefully. But fewer of us think of Jesus as king. But king he is, and he's the king of kings. So what does this look like? What should it look like in the world, in our hearts, in our community? And what does it mean for us? And this, this psalm does a great job of articulating that. So three points this morning, no surprise. The king we need, David's son, and then David, David's greater son. So first off, the king that we need. As Americans, kingship, let's just be honest, up front, it's just a difficult concept for us. And we're not all Americans here, but we're in America, and many of us are Americans. It's hard. We, our whole, the deck is stacked against us when it, we're talking about kingship in a way that we ought to crave it and want it and admire it, because our history derives from the fact that we rebelled against a king. Um, and we dumped a stinking tea in the Boston Harbor, right? Um, but the fact is that we all, fists up in the air, right? We all need a king to rule self and to rule society. Self and society are in many ways in, in a worse state in this country than they have been in the entire history of our country. Um, regarding self, we've got depression, suicide, drug addiction, major isolation, massive self-absorption on scales that we've never seen. And regarding society, we, the fact is we just need to say nothing of, of rulers present. We need just wise and good governors. We need them. We know this. Um, but as soon as I say that, let me just take a moment to distinguish in, in the scriptures. The, the scriptures don't just um, blanket advocate all kings or all rulers. There are bad kings and there are good kings. We need, we all need, this psalm advocates for the fact that we all need a good king. And Psalm 72 um, outlines that for us. Proverbs 29.2 says, when the righteous increase the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. And then like it's uh, Proverb 11:10, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Tim Keller explains these Proverbs and this concept by saying, when the righteous rise, all boats rise. When the righteous are blessed, they scatter that blessing out, and that's why the city's glad, because everybody, their lives get better when the righteous are blessed. But um, they, so they bring others with them. Their winning means everyone wins. But when the wicked win, most other people around them lose. In fact, they win by sucking out the marrow from the land 
to themselves and to their cronies. Um, and so it's a bad thing when the righteous are ruling because people, they're basically standing on top of the backs of others. But the righteous king and the righteous ruler scatters, and when he gains, everyone gains. Um, and the more a society reflects this, the healthier it is, okay? Psalm 72 shows us that not only um, we, but all creation, we were made for this kind of king. We were made for this kind of rule, both inside to rule self. We were not made to rule self. We as Americans don't like hearing that. And we, we were made to rule justly, but under the rule of a good king in our society as well. Um, we were made to live under the beneficent rule of a good king and of this good king that we're given um, a window into in this psalm. So what, is, so what does this king and his rule look like? Verse one, we see that his reign is not ultimate, but it's derivative. Hey, what is, how does it start out? Give the king your justice, O God. He's pleading with God to give him the justice of God. He's, he's looking to God. He's relying on God. He's praying to God. He's leaning in on God. His justice and power come from God, the ultimate king who has perfect power and wisdom um, and goodness. And, we, and he knows this. He's aware of this. So the king we need is dependent on God to rule well, right, wisely, and justly. Also, secondly, we see in verse 17, as I just articulated, that the rise of this king means that all, all rise, all rise. When he rules, he doesn't reign with people underfoot, quite the opposite. His reign is therefore good to his subjects. Um, he doesn't keep us under boot. Subjection to this king means exaltation for us and exultation, which means old-fashioned word that means praise and rejoicing. Verse 17 says, may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. So his, his reign means blessing in, in every sort of way. Prosperity, um, uh, a teeming of life in, in every category. Verses four, thirdly, verses four in 12 through 14, this is a major aspect of the rule of this king. What does it look like? It looks like the low, especially being attended to, the neglected, those that are poor and needy in all sorts of ways. The king has a special eye for them and a special heart for them. He's just and kind. The wicked give favors to the healthy and the strong those that can help them. This king's the opposite of that. He's the opposite of that. Um, so part of the way that the low and the, pre- the oppressed are attended to is that the oppressors are, verse four, crushed. Justice is meted out. So this king is no powder puff. He loves the low and the humble and there's a tenderness and a compassion to him, but he's also strong and he will do away with injustice. And he will crush those who step on the poor and the defenseless. Psalms, Psalm 2 speaks of the same king, the Messianic king, as it says, his wrath is, what's this king like? It says, it's a terrifying verse. It says, his wrath is quickly kindled. And quote, you shall break all peoples opposed to you with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. So if this king is resisted, ultimately, his opposition will be destroyed. Destroyed. So this is, this is a terrifying king in a sense, but he, he's tender as well. So in some, he's strong, but he's also tender and just, only using his power for good. Lord Acton said, famously said, um, a British, I think parliamentarian, but ruler, he said, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. But this king has, we'll, we'll see in a second, has all power, and yet uses it for the, for the benefit of those that can't help themselves. Um, verse 17b, 
Um, what is more than even this, he's an international king, so his reign reaches out across, across nations to bring them together. So he's an international king, and he brings, even back when this was written 3,000 years ago, he, there's a, a global scope to his reign. And yet he's not power hungry. He uses power to build coalitions and yet to keep nations, nations. So there's still a sense of diversity um, there. And then verses 3 and 16, what's even more than that, um, not only are people blessed under this king's rule, but so are environments. So all creation is affected. Verse 16, all creation responds and even nature flourishes. It says, may there be abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of the mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon. Think about that in terms of, it's like saying the economy is booming because grain was, was a huge part of the economy then and still is today. Um, this recalls the line from the song that many of us sang as kids, oh beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesty above the fruited plain. This, the, the language to that song uh, that American song is so parallel to this verse that I, I found myself wondering after studying this this week if that wasn't, if it wasn't built upon um, this actual verse. There's, it's almost parallel in every sense. Um, the verse finishes, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. So this is a huge aspect to this king's reign and rule, in that all creation blossoms to its fullest potential and fruitfulness under the reign of this king. And that's one thing that good leaders and good rulers do is that they don't just lift up those who are low. They don't just crush the oppressor and mete out justice. They cultivate potential so that things blossom. Creation blossoms. The potential inherent in the economy, in the land itself, in all the surrounding environs, um, in the environment, in people. People blossom like flowers and like heads of wheat. A good leader brings out the potential in people and in those things that he rules or she rules. It's like a good coach. Um, they get you to the place where you can do things. They see things in you, and they cultivate things in you that you didn't even know were there. Um, they give you the I see in you thing, and then they put you through, it seems like, hell to get there but they bring out things in you that you didn't even know were there. And this is, what, this is a mark of a good leader. And this is what good leaders do. They cultivate potential and they, they even create potential. Um, the king does this. And then lastly, under point one, in, in verse five, this king won't die. That's really, it's really interesting. His reign won't end because the, his reign ending is bad news for us because of the kind of king he is. His reign is tied to the endurance of sun and moon. It's gonna last as long as the sun and moon last. So that's, that's the kind of king we need. Let's look at point two, David's son. Let's look at David's son. Um, so the title here, which is part of the original psalm, it's part of the Hebrew text. Chapter titles are not, but this title um, of Solomon, it is part of the original. So it says of Solomon, but it, that preposition in the Hebrew can mean a few different things. So it can also mean commonly to Solomon or for Solomon. So it could be a psalm by Solomon, the king, the son of David, but it could also be a psalm um, by David of Solomon, to Solomon, his son. So I think the style and the subject matter have in, the, in its favor Solomon as the author, as I read it. And I think um, some other things have David as the author. Ultimately, it's not conclusive, but the last verse reads, 
as Robin read it in verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So um, this, this could mean that it's to Solomon or for Solomon um, and that um, David is saying, okay, my prayers are ended here. But it could also mean that it's the end of a section of a lot of Psalms that David has written and this could be a Psalm of Solomon. Either way, it's tapping into, it's based on the promise that David gave to, that God gave to David about his son saying, your reign's never gonna end. I'm gonna give you a son. We're gonna look at this scripture in a bit here. I'm gonna give you a son that will basically reign forever and your rule and your reign through him will never end. And this is found in 2 Samuel 7 um, and it's going to extend over all the earth, okay? So David or Solomon are, are hooking into that and making this prayer and giving us a window into um, Solomon's reign, in a sense, into Solomon's reign, Okay? Because the promise was at least partially fulfilled through Solomon, given to Solomon. So, because it also says, and we'll find this in a second, this son of yours will build a temple for my name. David, I'm not going to let you build it, but this son will. And his reign is going to be full of prosperity. We see that happening with Solomon. His reign is full of prosperity and power. Um, there's a sense in which his reign was sort of the golden age or the apogee of Israel's ancient history. And it was it said that like silver was accounted as like rocks or dust in the streets because there was so much gold. Um, so there was massive prosperity. It was a time of peace, like the Pax Romana, the Roman peace under Augustus. There was a, a Pax um, Israel under Solomon. His reign extended, secondly, farther than any other, that of any other king of Israel had, way farther than David's. In verse 8, we see the reign of this king extending from sea to sea, that is, from the Dead Sea to the Mediterranean. But also, um, 1 Kings 4.21 said Solomon ruled over the, all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines which is the Western Mediterranean shore, and to the border of Egypt, which we see in Psalm 72, 8 here. Sheba and Seba are near the Red Sea. And then in verse 10. Um, so Solomon fulfills a, a lot of this psalm, but not really. Not, he, doesn't, he doesn't fulfill all of it, not, not really even close when you start to look at it more closely. Um, the extent of this king's reign, as I've hinted at, is way beyond Solomon's reign. It says as far as Tarshish, which is Spain, um, and all, he, his reign extends over all kings and nations in verse 11. And indeed, as I've just said, in verse 16, over what? All creation. So Solomon, as big as his empire was, as much prosperity as he had, it was st- he, he reigned still over a corner, in, uh, just a corner of the world. Um, it can't be fulfilled in Solomon, this psalm. Um, verse 5 says, may they fear you while the sun endures. The prayer is that this king's reign would last forever, but Solomon's ended when he died. Solomon also had a lack of concern for the oppressed. He put many to hard labor to build his palace, which took 13 years, and the temple, which took seven years, and other projects. Um, He took from many. His riches were plentiful during his reign, but he also consumed and took too much. So see, if you see Samuel's warning to Israel in 1 Samuel 8, he says that the king is going to take your sons. You want a king? Fine. God's going to give you a king, but he's going to take your sons, your daughters, your field, the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards. He's going to make you fight his battles. He's going to take your servants and flocks from you. And we see that that's what Solomon does. Um, the daily consumption of Solomon's house in 1 Kings 4, 22, quote, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. That's just to feed his household for the day. 1 Kings 4.26, quote, Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses. I think that number might be a manuscript error, but he had a ton of horses. 
um, for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. This is against God's direct prohibition in Deuteronomy 17. Quote, only he must not acquire many horses for himself. This is God speaking about the king that he blesses and the king that ought to rule over Israel. He says, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Oops. Lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold and silver. Oops again. Of course, Solomon broke this command with impunity, especially the one about the wives. Um, his covenant infidelity, I've saved the best and the shortest till last. He, was, uh, he broke God's covenant. He set up altars, the, the foreign gods that his wives worshipped. He allowed for Israel to worship and worshipped himself. himself. He had over a thousand wives and concubines. Um, it boggles the mind, uh, foreign and domestic. So this psalm is partially fulfilled by Solomon. This is the summation of my point, point two. But there's no way, there's no way this psalm is totally talking about Solomon here. He doesn't fulfill it. But David's greater son, point three, which we'll spend the rest of our time on, he does fulfill it. So let's look at that. David's greater son um, through Solomon, okay? Second Samuel, uh, well, I say that through Solomon, through Nathan. Um, David's greater son fulfills it completely. Let me read, as I said I would, from 2 Samuel 7, which is the covenant God makes with David saying, I'm gonna give you a son that will rule the nations and whose reign is never gonna end. It's gonna extend over all the earth and over all creation, okay? Solomon partially fulfills it. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, God saying to David, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, Solomon, but not just Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Can't be Solomon. Solomon was the shadow. Jesus is the reality. Solomon was the whisper. Jesus is the trumpet blast. Okay, Jesus' message when he comes to earth is what, in a nutshell? The king, the kingdom is coming and the kingdom is here because the king is here. Because the king is here. Um, what does his reign look like? Well, one thing I can say in three words is this. All boats rise. When Jesus Christ, the son of David, the Messiah, the king about whom, that fulfills this psalm and about whom this psalm is speaking comes, he makes everything better. He lifts people up, especially the low. Verse one, his reign is derivative. He says uh, in the gospels, he says, I do nothing of my own, nothing. I only do whatever I hear the, I only do whatever I see the father doing and I only say whatever I hear the father saying. And what do the father say of his son? He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Do you see that dependence on the father? Utter, as a man, he has, he has subjected himself in the economy of the Trinity, co-equal with God in being, but made himself gladly completely dependent on the king, his father, okay? And so here's this prince, our king, Jesus, saying this and living in this way. Verses 12 and 13, again, in this psalm, Psalm 72, we see this special concern for the poor. Um, Jesus starts his most famous sermon um, by saying, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. His ministry bears this out. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist is in prison and he's, the forerunner of the Messiah, and he's thinking, he's got ideas about Messiah, 
some of which are consonant with the popular ideas of the day about the king who's going to come, the king of the Jews, and he's going to liberate the Jews. And here is John in prison, about to get his head chopped off. Not sure if he knows that at this point. But he's thinking, man, is this, is this what it's going to look like when the, when the king comes? So he sends his servants to say, are you the one? Are you the one? Um, and Jesus responds. So he says, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them. Go and tell John what you hear and see. In other words, here's how you know that the king is here. What are the marks? The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So see how he fulfills, we could see in in, in massive ways the fulfillment of this psalm in the life of Jesus. Um, His favorite thing was going and keeping company with notorious sinners and doing things that seemed extremely impure to the religious and legal scholars of the day. He loved touching the untouchable like lepers and outcasts. Um, and um, he, he kept company with uh, the poor, the confused, the wandering, the hurting. He loved to preach good news and also to demonstrate it. Um, blue-collar workers were his, his closest confidants. Um, Verse 17 here, we see in Psalm 72 again that he's the king of the nations. All are blessed in him and bless him. Um, his, reign, his reign transcends, binds, and imbues cultures, um, giving them a common king, a common love, while bringing out the best in those nations and cultures and peoples. His reign makes all subjects better, and they love him for it. Um, and, and we see this, we see this in Christ, not incipiently in the Gospels, but more and more now as he reigns. Um, Daniel 7, a prophecy about Jesus 700 years, ooh, excuse me, 500 years before Jesus. Um, Daniel says, Daniel seven thirteen. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus Christ, this is a, this is a prophecy about Messiah, and Jesus Christ comes and shows us that he is that king. Um, under Christ's rule, even creation and nature flourish in verse 16. Um, Psalm 96.12 says that the trees of the forest will sing for joy. So again, all creation blossoms, even the economy thrives, arts and creativity flourish, crime drops to zero, um, rejoicing becomes the norm, every aspect of culture blossoms like a, like a tulip in spring under the reign of this king. So we see some of this happening in Jesus' reign in a, in a microcosmic way, but we see more and more of it happening um, even today. So, but the problem with this is, if Jesus is this Messiah, and he is. The problem with this is at least twofold. I see at least two problems with this. First off, um, this king of Psalm 72 is a king of utter justice and perfect righteousness. He will not tolerate any unrighteousness or injustice. He crushes um, all opposition and all that oppress the poor and the needy. And the fact is that we, if we're honest for a half a second with ourselves, we are all full of injustice and unrighteousness. And we have all taken advantage of, of those that are less fortunate. And the fact is that we are lawbreakers. I mean, 
all the law hangs on two commands. Love God with everything that you are all the time from your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Tend to think about, care for those around you with as much attention as you do for yourself. When have I ever for five minutes kept that? I'm a lawbreaker. We, we have unrighteousness in us, and so we're on the wrong side of this king who has a heart of compassion for the less fort- fortunate and who will end all injustice. Um, but also, um, we don't want the king that we need. Let me give you proof of that. Proof of that is Jesus is that king, and look at what we did to him. He came full of righteousness doing justice, extending mercy like I've just talked about and like a lot of us are familiar with, bursting at the seams with compassion. And what did we do to him in our humanity, in our rebellion? When we saw the perfect king and he came into our midst and he pointed out the sin in us while, while incarnating and in, in opening up this ministry that's talked about in Psalm 72 before us, we nailed him, we put him to death. We nailed him to a Roman cross. But in his genius, the king used these very problems as the vehicle for our salvation. We hated his righteousness, we crucified him for it, and he used that very thing to save us. The cross became the vehicle by which Jesus takes our place. Um, Justin once was talking, I think it was a couple weeks ago that he mentioned, probably at a prayer meeting, he mentioned that he had a flower once. You know how with flowers you do the, uh, he loves me, he loves me not, or she loves me, she loves me not, with every other petal, with every petal. And Justin said, he was trying to illustrate the love of God, and he's like, he loves me. He loves me. He loves me. There's no loves me not, right? This is the love of God for us in Christ. I want to give you a, not a slightly different image. I want to give you a completely different image while using the same language. And that is that as we were nailing Christ, each of us, just imagine yourself with a spike in your hand, pounding the spike through his wrist and through his, through his ankles because it is our sin that put him there on the cross. And it is we who, when he came in his perfection, hated him so much, this righteous and just king full of compassion that we said, away with you, you're done. As we're nailing him to the cross with every pound of the hammer and of the mallet, he is saying, we, we can say because of what he's done, because he used that, as the vehicle for our salvation, he loves me, bam. He loves me, bam. He loves me, bam. He knew what he was dying for. He came to die in our place, to take our place, knowing that we would crucify him. Um, Verse 14, to get back to the Psalm, Psalm 72, it says, from oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. How precious. Again, so precious that he gave his own blood to, to save us. He stood in our place. Um, and the word, the word there is redeems. He redeems their life. It's the financial word. It means he purchases. At what cost? At what cost did he purchase our lives? Uh, from the enemy, from Satan, from what we had sold ourselves into, from sin, to give us, to bring us back to the Father, our maker, and the lover of our souls at the cost of his life, at the cost of his soul. He gave everything and was eternally disintegrated. And I say it with trembling because I don't, it's a mystery. I don't know how it happened, but he gave everything of who he is. He was, he was, I don't, 
I, I, I hesitate to say the word denatured. It's a mystery. But he was completely undone and took everything that we deserve before a just and a holy and a righteous God and king. Um, he, was, he took the oppression. He was crushed. And, and what he purchased our lives from this oppression. Oppression from what? Sin, death, the devil, hell, at the price of, of his own life and his own soul. And he took what was coming to us, oppression and violence. And this is the great exchange. Jesus, before the beginning of, of all things, knew what would transpire um, in our rebellion. And he said to the Father, in the fullness of time, Father, me for them. Take me instead of them and accept them. And Paul says this in this way in Galatians 2.20. He says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me in what? and gave himself for me. He stood in my place. Our founding text is Isaiah 61, um, one through four. In verses one and two, Jesus chose these verses, a lot of you know this, I say it all the time, to inaugurate his ministry, to announce his ministry. And they're written 700 years before Jesus, and he stands up at the moment of his um, stepping into the spotlight and into his public ministry, and he opens the scroll, and he reads from Isaiah 61, and the first verse says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Listen to how much this sounds like Psalm 72. To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison of those who are bound. And then verse two, check this out. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then what does he do? He closes the scroll, he hands it to the attendant and he sits down. Now what's weird about that? Why do I accentuate that? Um, what's weird about that is because he left off the end of verse two. He cut it off right in the middle. And what is the end of verse two? And the day of vengeance of our God. That's how the verse ends. Jesus said, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he closes it. The finish of the verse is, and, I've, and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Vengeance against what? Vengeance against rebellion and sin and standing on the backs of others to get ours. Things of which, if we're honest, for a second, all of us are guilty. Why did he close the scroll? Why didn't he say that? Because the last line wasn't for us. It was for him. That's what he was saying. It was intended for us, but he came to take it in our place. He came to take the just vengeance of God in our place. Um, Psalm 72 talks maybe more than anything else about the king disadvantaging himself to advantage others. This is the mark of the king that we need. He stoops low to lift the low up to the highest place. Think about how much Jesus Christ embodies this as the king. He left heaven and came all the way down to earth and farther went down to hell to rescue us and then lifts us up, Ephesians 2, and seats us up with him in the heavenly places in the throne of God. Regardless of what's happening here on earth, where we are, he seats us with the Father, with all of his inheritance that will be ours forever. And he is fully ours now. And this is our life now. Could you disadvantage yourself anymore? Could you advantage people anymore to your own disadvantage than Jesus has done? No, you couldn't. Verse 18 says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. You, you focus on that word wondrous. David could not have known, even with all of his foresight and wisdom and love for God, how wondrous of a thing God would do in giving us this kind of king and in demonstrating to us his kingship. 
through the cross, that God Almighty, the ultimate king who has all rights by right, would lay all that aside and uh, take our rebellion upon himself on the cross. Um, But we, this side of the cross, can gaze and ought to gaze at what God's done for us in Christ and at this king that we need. Um, So notice that this song is a prayer, like I said in verse 20. Um, it's, It's a prayer of David saying, God, we need this king. I believe you've given me the word that one of my sons will be this king. Solomon was, but he really wasn't. But notice the power, the effectiveness of David's prayer. The fact that he's asking God for this and what God did through David's son, Jesus Christ, to give us this king. And now his reign is indeed spreading over all the earth. The power of prayer, it's astounding. Um, So I just mentioned Jesus' inaugural passage, our founding passage, Isaiah 61. Broken people made whole, the bound freed. Um, Restored people restore places that they inhabit. That's how Psalm 61, that's what it moves into in verse four. It says, these freed people, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So what happens? People who come to Christ and are brought from our loneliness to the heights through what he's done for us, we're liberated from sin and from Satan, and from hell, and from death. No matter what's going on here, we know that all the big questions have been taken care of, and that he is ours, and that we are his. As Justin read from from John 15, he is in us, and we in him. Um, As we move into the environments that God's placed us in, that freedom spreads. His kingship spreads. So as I close, just three brief things of Jesus as king. How can um, his kingship, and manifest itself through us, and how should it, and how can his kingdom come through us, okay? So three things, and then we're done. Um, first off, it must come in our hearts, and if you take notes, write, write these down. If you're not, that's fine. Um, his kingdom, Jesus is king, his kingdom must come in our hearts. Um, his kingdom can't flow through us if he doesn't have us, if he's not king in his rightful place in our hearts. If we're not spending time with him, that it's, it's not about a, a reign where we just do what he says. It is about that, but it's about he came to bring us back into a place of being known by the Father and of knowing the Father, a place of peace, a place of, of love, the love that we're made for. All of our heart longings that we, where we run after other things for satisfaction, it's us, um, it's us running after things that will never satisfy when he has made us for himself. And so if we're not cultivating that by spending time with him in his word and in prayer, um, then he's not going to be able to be king in every area of our lives and our hearts. So that's the first question is, is it, his kingship must come in our hearts. Do you give him pride of place? Just be honest. If, again, like Jack Deere said when he was practicing archery with the state champion of Montana, Archer, um, and he had his eyes closed and he shot at me and the archer said, how did that feel? And Jack was like, he hesitated he's like, felt good. And the archer looked at him and it was apparently just like a terrible shot. I don't know. But he looked at him and he said, Jack, never lie to yourself. If you're, if you lie to yourself about these questions, if you're not honest, you can't make progress. If you're not honest with God. Do we give him pride of place? Does he sit on the throne of my life and of your life? Does the way that you steward your research, his resources testify? If we looked at the way that you steward time, the money that you have, 
the relationships, the relational capital that you have, and on and on, the spheres that he's put you in, would it testify to the fact that, dude, that person, Jesus is king. Jesus is number one in their lives. Or does there, need, does there need to be an inventory? I guarantee you for each of us, there does need to be an inventory. This is, this is to help us. So he has to be king in our hearts, first of all. Secondly, um, his kingdom has to come in our environments. Um, putting Jesus on display. Again, as he said with the Father, I only say what the Father's saying and I only do what I see him doing. Um, are we keeping in step with the Holy Spirit? Are we doing what Jesus is doing throughout our day and saying what he's saying? Are we abiding in him? Are we living out lives of constant communication with him? Is he king over your schedule and relationships and work and money and time? Are we telling the gospel and then showing the gospel and knowing that he is moving us throughout our day as king, wanting for his kingdom to come in every environment in our lives? Work, family, the shops that we visit and patronize, the restaurants we go to, the relationships that he's given to us. Um, are we putting Jesus on display? Um, Again, I, I kind of mentioned this from the beginning, but, you know, when we share the gospel with folks in a variety of ways, a lot of times what's on our hearts and on our lips is Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And it's true. That's 100% true. We don't even know how true that is. Jesus loves you so much. I want to tell you how much. But just as true is the fact that, go back to this psalm, Jesus is the king. And the fact of the matter is that he loves you so much that he stepped in the gap and took the wrath that was coming your way. But the fact is that he's the king, and if you don't flee to Christ, he has all authority and all rule, and he has made a way for us to be with the Father by taking the hit for us and being the fall guy. But if we don't flee to him, and if we don't run to him as Savior and Lord, he will come in power, and he will crush all who oppose him as with a rod of iron against a clay pot. And it's gonna be the opposite of fun. And that needs to be part of our message and part of our understanding in the way that we live is that Jesus Christ, as screwed up as the world looks right now and as screwed up as we can be on the inside, he is king and he has all authority and he is making all things new and he has all dominion and when he comes again, he is going to finish what he started. And so now is the time. There's a sense in which our message to ourselves and others ought to be, flee from the wrath to come. There is a way, and his name is Jesus. And, and he is concerned about every single area of our lives, internally and externally, about every aspect of our culture. As, a, as one theologian and politician famously said once, um, there's not a single square inch in the universe over which Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't say, mine. He's king. He's not just your savior. He's Lord. He's king. There's no area that he's disinterested in. There's no area of your life that's yours. It's his. And it's also, it's also his of all those who do not bow. They will bow. Be assured of that. There is no other king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is part of our message. And then finally, it's part of our worldview because it's part of our message and the way we ought to think and feel about all things. Um, third point, Jesus as king, it must come in our worldview. Um, if I asked you, and I close with this, if I asked you, tell me about your future. Tell me about your future plans. Five seconds. What are the first five seconds of thoughts that you have? And your first thought after I say that was the next 60 years. You've just shown, and I'm not, I, I, it happened to me too when I first asked myself that question. You've just shown that you're almost completely out of step with everything that this psalm has to teach us. 
because Christ's reign, the reign of this Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, is going to extend over every single inch, not just of the world, but of creation, of the cosmos. He's going to make all things new, and, um, and it's never going to end. It's never going to end, okay? Uh, this life is just, it, it's, 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 um, it's the beginning of a rope that is eternal, and it's just the way, that, the way that we live here is like a shake of the rope, and it reverberates throughout the rest of eternity. So this is, this is prep. This 60 years that we have left is prepping for eternity. So when I ask you, um, tell me about your future, this psalm ought to help us to think next time when we answer that question. Um, oh yeah, I'm thinking about the next 10,000 years. If the way that we are living isn't living in such a way that we are saying, is this the right decision in light of the next 10,000 years? and then 10 million years. Um, and if it's not the right decision in light of that kind of reach and scope and span, we got it wrong. If we're living for this blip, we got it wrong. And we're out of step with this Messiah and this King whose name is Jesus. Um, so, I didn't mean for that last word to be a downer. Uh, it, it should be a hopeful word. Because guess what? This is not as good as it gets. That's, that's the sort of flip side of what I just said, right? Um, he's going to, when he comes again, he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. He's going to show us how all this stuff that we've been through is worth it. He's going to bring us to him and we're gonna be as he is when we see him face to face. He'll be able to hold us and we him. And we will be satisfied in ways that we've only tasted here. Um, and he's going to make all things new, and we're going to feast with him, uh, of which this is just a tiny, tiny, tiny taste, this table that we're about to celebrate together. So let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Psalm 72. Thank you for David and Solomon and for the fact that they just didn't even come close to fulfilling this word, but it pointed to one who would come from David, who would fulfill it, and who indeed is fulfilling it. We see his reign when he died on the cross, the disciples thought it was over. And now, 2,000 years later, we can actually see how his reign is extending over all the earth. And uh, we can get glimmers of it now. And, and we are just so thankful. And I pray that we would be, first of all, that we would flee to you, that we would run to you, that you would get lordship over every area of our hearts and over each of us, that we would bow willingly and not the other side of death and not the other side of your coming where we will bow. Um, because we have no choice, because you are the king and you have all power, um, that we would hide in you. And that every area that we, you would restore every area of our lives as you are king over them, and that you would restore every area that we walk into as your body, as you reign now uh, from heaven through your body on earth. So I, I pray all these things in good hope as David did, and we have a lot more to look at than David did. And so we pray with our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, and we say, Holy Spirit, come revive our hearts again and bring your kingdom here in this Galleria area and through this Galleria area around the world. And it's in your name I pray, amen.